Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com circle. That's PrivSource.com circle. Guest today on the Circle of Competence podcast is Alex Bridgman, the founder of Think Like an Owner podcast. Many will know Alex for his prolific Twitter feed and podcasting dedicated to the SMB space. And today we're excited to dig in on growing his podcast and the lessons that he's learned along the way. Alex, welcome to the Circle of Competence podcast. Thanks, Ben and Victor, for having me. It's great to be on. Uh, I've been enjoying your your project from afar. So it's fun to, fun to see it working in person. <laughs> Virtually. Well, sort of in person. So uh, we're excited to get you on and, and really just to dig in on the podcast side, uh, as well as some of the lessons learned just from interviewing, you know, 50 plus uh, fantastic guests, operators, investors in the uh, small business space. So, but before we get there, would just love to give you the floor for three to five minutes just to sort of tell your backstory, you know, your, your career thus far and what led you to getting into podcasting full time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I went to school over here in University of Portland as well. And there was a there's a program called Entrepreneurial Scholars that I was a part of in my uh, junior and senior year, and actually just my senior year. And the project, the podcast, was actually a project that came out of that program. It's something I'd thought about for a while, but I I kind of included it as part of the the curriculum for the for the project or for the class, but. Um, I'd always been interested in investing. I thought the Berkshire Hathaway model was pretty interesting because you could buy these companies and then use their own income to go buy other companies. I thought that concept was really interesting. It's sort of com- you know compounding capital without using the public markets. If you think of the way that, you know money compounds publicly, um, but of course Warren Buffett's now dealing with you know huge like bank ownership laws and just things that any person buying small companies doesn't have to worry about because he's just so huge. And so it's just kind of, it was hard to relate to him and hard to kind of get lessons from studying the today, today's Berkshire. And so I was thinking, are there people doing this today, but on a smaller scale? And it turns out there are, but it took me a while to find them. Cause if you don't have the right, you know, Google search term, it's hard to find something like, you know, exactly what you want and what you're looking for. But unless you know, like the correct lingo that the industry uses or like that problem needs, yeah, that's it's really hard to find kind of what you're looking for. And so listening to Invest Like the Best episodes with the Chenmark folks and the Harvard professors and Brent Bishore, I was like, oh my gosh, okay, there is actually this this world that does this and they're out there. 
and they're they use in different terms like micro private equity and search funds and so start putting those into google and it starts to become really interesting where it turns out there are people buying small companies and building portfolios of them as well and using a lot of those same concepts but just on a very small local scale and i thought okay this is really interesting up until that point i wanted to be a value hedge fund manager and just be like the solo gp like in my office you know reading 10ks all day long i thought that was really interesting but after finding this smb space and search funds in particular i thought this is way way more interesting than any of that was um and so i, I kind of knew immediately i wanted to build a career in whatever this was um but there's not like a clear-cut way to build a career there's not a search fund job you can get at an undergrad you can go try to buy a business but most people are leaving in their mba programs after years of work experience to go do that so that didn't feel like a very viable idea so i thought okay well i'll start this podcast on the side of my job and i will grow it and just see what happens and i i figured there's you know any good networker usually at the end of every call or every coffee meeting you have they ask you know who are the two to three people you might be able to introduce me to and I thought, if I want to get to know people in this space, I could do that way and go just have coffee meeting, phone call, you know, one by one, and just kind of branch out your networking like family tree that way. Or I could create something that's more public facing that if someone finds it and they like it, they might reach out. And so far, that strategy has panned out pretty well and um, and such that also gives you a little bit of credibility. So if I if I do reach out cold to somebody and I mention my podcast, maybe they haven't even listen to it, but they may have like heard it in passing and they're sort of familiar with it. So it gives a little bit of credibility that way. But as a way to kind of build a network and become familiar with the space, the podcast has been really good for doing that. And last summer I went full-time. I got three sponsors and quit my full-time job and worked on the podcast full-time. I also got married um, the day after my last day at my full-time job. So I started my marriage uh, without a job. So that was kind of funny. Um, but it's been a, it's been a pretty good project to work on since. And it's, it's grown to a degree that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. If I had to describe my own just personal journey of just learning about Warren Buffett and investing, um, it would probably be the exact same story of getting obsessed with the public markets, calling myself a value investor 16 times a day, reading through 10 Ks to get, uh, to, to get an understanding of different business models and then figuring out that uh, that just reading all day is not necessarily uh, what I want to do with the rest of my life and that you know maybe there's a component uh, piece of me that wants to operate businesses as well as invest in them so I want to I, I really want to start off with the tweet thread and the article that you just put out last weekend about your recommendation to start a podcast as a differentiator. Just walk through that article and your thesis there, and then and then we'll go from there. Sure. So that that pod or that not podcast that tweet thread was just an idea of mine. I don't. It's not something I would recommend to every searcher, but I think as we get into this, it'll be clear that it's really designed for a searcher who already has an industry in mind. Um, most searchers will kind of take a generalist approach for the first few months, so they'll they'll look at. Not not just any industry, but they'll look at a pretty wide variety of industries and do some research and determine, is this an industry I'm interested in or do I need to move on and go find something else? And so it's really not designed for those folks. But I think if you have an industry in mind and you're okay not buying something immediately within a year or two, I think this is a, a viable path. So the path I kind of outlined was instead of launching a formal search fund, why don't you launch a podcast? 
And this podcast would be focused on a particular industry. It'd be interview based and it would be weekly release. So the idea being not only can you, this is just a different way for you to get in front of sellers because a lot of searchers or the vast majority of searchers, if they're going to reach out to owners, they're going to send emails or, you know, just do a phone call. And that's really crowded and it's really hard to stand out. There are still ways to stand out in that and, you know, doing that. But there's there's other ways nowadays, I think, to get in front of sellers that might be a little bit more creative. And so this was just an idea I outlined. So some of the benefits of creating a podcast could be you're developing, you know, credibility within a space. You know, owners in that industry are listening to your podcast as you interview experts in their industry and other owners. That's going to help you, you know, when you go to eventually talk to an owner, they're going to recognize that. Um, but there's also potential that as the pod, as a podcast grows, you're able to get sponsors and now you can pay for your search. So you can now go from having a, you know, two-year horizon to if you can pay your living expenses through this podcast, your search horizon just became infinite. So you're not necessarily concerned about buying a company immediately. And you can kind of wait for the podcast to grow to the point where inbounds start to happen more frequently. And just for added context, Think Like an Owner was monthly from November 2018 until July 2020. So basically a year and a half of just doing it monthly. And growth was really slow. And I tweeted out a kind of a chart of the downloads for the podcast. And it's like there's like a long tail to the left. It's very flat. And then as it hits weekly, it basically doubles overnight and it just keeps going all up and up. And I think just as a side note, having a weekly podcast is really attractive because if if a listener knows that every Tuesday at 6 a.m. Eastern, there's going to be a new episode in their feed, they're going to be more likely to listen to it and more likely to refer it to somebody else. And so that's part of my recommendation for doing a weekly podcast with an industry focus, which it's hard to do because you don't necessarily have that network immediately. So it will take a lot of work for the first, you know, 30 to 40 guests perhaps, which is why you can also use those same search tactics. So the, the search tactics of, you know, having an email campaign and sending, you know, reaching out to a bunch of owners directly. But I would suspect that if you reached out to an owner and you said, Hey, look, come on my podcast, you know, instead of sell me your business, I would think a lot more would be responsive to that. Um, and so, because people, owners love talking about their businesses. I think any searcher who's gotten on the phone with an owner and really asked them about their business, I think knows that intuitively because they don't get asked that much and it's, it's their baby. They love talking about it. You know, I have a dog. I love talking about my dog. You know, an owner is going to be the same way with their business. So, um, I think it's a unique way that you can pay for your search, develop a unique way to get in front of owners because eventually owners are going to want to reach out to you and, you know, talk with you if you're doing a podcast about their space, especially if it's really niche. And eventually someone's going to come by and offer to sell you their business. And the way to really turn that on is after a while of running the podcast, you then make some announcement or you leave a note at the end, beginning and end of your show saying that you're looking to buy a company. So I feel like I'm jumping around a little bit, but basically start the podcast, make sure it's weekly, interview industry guests, get sponsors. And then once you have enough momentum, uh, make a notice or announcement that you are looking to buy a company in this space because now you have this audience of pretty much all owners. If you've, if you've done it with just one core industry, you've, it's all owners listening from that industry to your podcast. And if even you just need one to be willing to sell for the whole thing to work. So if you're confident that of the 1500 downloads an episode you're getting or some number that, you know, maybe one is looking to sell, 
or two or three, you can really, you can have a meaningful you know, outcome from that. So I think it's you know, a long winded way of saying that I think this is just a unique way of, if you have an industry already in mind, this is a unique way to get in front of owners and potentially buy a business in a you know, more unconventional way. Has this idea kind of come naturally as your podcast has grown or was this kind of the North star since the beginning? No. So my, my North star hasn't been to buy a company myself. Um, something I've been wanting to do is invest in searchers. And that's something I'm trying to do a little bit more work on today. Um, so if you think of think like an owner's, you know, quote, quote, deal flow, deal flow to me is intros with new searchers. And there's usually about two to three searchers a day who reach out to the podcast and me wanting to just chat and hear what I'm, what I'm seeing, what I'm thinking. And, um, if the deal that they have is an interesting one or, um, you know, all these different questions and just want to kind of, a lot of the times they're at the start of their search period and just want to hear about how a search usually goes. And if, if I have any advice, um, sometimes they'll have deals now that I've made an announcement that I'm looking to invest in searchers, they are also bringing uh, deals to my attention. So I'm getting to see those as well. But that in my mind is deal flow for me. Um, but if I was running an industry focused podcast, then perhaps deal flow to me is people wanting to sell me their business. What, what would like an ideal investment look like for you right now? I think the ideal investment, it's hard to say because there's, and I'm trying not to put too much parameters around it just because I don't have the same deal reps that a lot of current search fund investors do who are veterans at it. I've done it for you know 10 plus years who have that pattern recognition and ability to identify quickly whether a search is you know a good investment or not. I'm not there yet, so it's hard to put too many rules and brackets around what I want to invest in. But in my mind, the most some of the most interesting searchers to invest in are those who are already in the industry that they want to acquire in, and are maybe a supervisor or a manager or an employee. And you know, just take HVAC for instance. Maybe they work at an HVAC company, they're a technician, and they want to go buy a company in that space, and they've identified one. You know, that's a that's a pretty interesting position to find yourself in because that person already knows about the industry, so they're going to be able to talk the language with an owner. And they just need to find an owner and get into the business. And once they're into the business, they're probably going to kill it because they're already familiar with so much of how that business works. And I had one of the, one of those types of searchers reached out the other day who was looking at the like home installation for um, home security, like Simply Safe and that ADT and that sort of thing. And they've worked in the business for ten years. They found a company that you know is being for so, being sold by a broker that's in their industry. They know exactly how that business works. They don't want their boss knowing that they're thinking of quitting their job to go buy this company. So there's like, there's no public way of finding that person. So the only way you find that person is if you have a, a personal brand that they are intrigued by and reach out to. So that's, that's typically how I hear from those deals. And I think there's a whole investment strategy to, to, be, to be developed around finding people like that. Yeah. So if you had to, if you had to forecast what your next few years look like, do you think primary focus would be running the podcast and, and using the deal flow generated from there to invest in search funds? That's certainly part of it. Um, I think the, I think that there's a lot of room to even grow the podcast just on its own. Um, and there's, there's a whole new series of episodes we could develop. And um, there's a print publication I'm working on as well for just operating nice. a small company, kind of like the HBR, but for just really small, tiny companies, you know, with, you know, 60 to 100 employees that are kind of sweaty and not sexy 
Um, I don't think there's enough you know, documentation around how those companies operate in different ways to do it well. Um, but I think if you look three years from now, think like an owner's, you know, continuing to grow as a podcast. I think the print publication is becoming more interesting. And yeah. I think as an investor, I'm beginning to hone kind of what I prefer to invest in and what I am really starting to, I, it's hard to tell whether that's the time when I'll start specializing, but I think that's, I'm going to have enough reps under my feet that I'm going to have a good idea of, I have a better idea of what to look for certainly than today. There's so many, so many different routes. I want to go with this conversation, Alex. I mean, I want to ask you about growing the podcast because we're at the very early stages. Benton has been growing this for over a year or two, but first and foremost, when did you feel like your podcast was like really catching on? I know you said you went to weekly, but was there like a subscriber count or was it when you got sponsors where you're like, all right, this could actually become something. I think getting sponsors was certainly a big moment. Um, I think in terms of just if there's a particular guest that really, or a particular episode that really made me think, wow, this could, this could be something, um, was definitely Colin Hathaway. Uh, he was someone who like from the first phone call I had with him, like I knew I wanted him on the show and for context, he runs a HVAC and plumbing roll up from Seattle, uh, called the Flint group. He's also the GP of Skylight partner or Skylight capital and uh, has invested in a few companies that way, but super, super interesting guy, lots of great stories, very intelligent and someone I knew would be an awesome guest. And I spent a year, you know, following up every few months to try to get a hold of him and see if he'd be willing to share his story. And he was pretty reluctant and, but eventually after a year, he decided to, you know, hesitantly, you know, agreed to do an episode and he didn't like the way he sounded. He thought he was tired. And so we tried it again and we published it and he sent it out to his network, which was fairly substantial. But, um, I remember just hearing some of the initial feedback from that and, he sent me a few emails saying, wow, there's some real people who are like liking this episode and nice. they're enjoying it. And I was hearing the same things. And so very quickly we be, we realized that episode was becoming a hit and he would send me emails, you know, maybe every two or three days saying, Hey, how many downloads do we have now? How many downloads? And some of the, sometimes that would just be like when, when, when someone puts their message in the subject line, you know, he just like, there was no message, but just in the subject, he'd put how many now just downloads. Yeah. <laughs> How many, How many now? <laughs> exactly. And so he did that for a little while. It was fun to, it was fun to see, uh, this, this guy who was really, you know, quiet about what he did, but had a really amazing story and lots of knowledge and wisdom behind it go from kind of a quiet skeptic to a huge fan just by releasing an episode. And, and that it's now the most downloaded episode of the podcast. And that, I think that's when things really started to to turn in my mind where when was that by the way oh that was uh fall of last year so i'd already had sponsors for a few weeks or maybe a month or two at that point and had some momentum there but i think colin really pushed you know the podcast over the edge in that regard um it became i think a little bit more a little bit more well known i think when when folks reach out today often they reference that episode still how did they get out there though I, I think Colin had a fairly good professional network already in place because he's been doing this for you know, many, many years. So he'd already built up a lot of professional context. I think most people who you know, run companies today aren't familiar with the search world and the HVAC space. I think most people know of Colin. And so when he appeared on this episode, which he doesn't appear on anything, 
Um, I think people were kind of drawn to that. And he, of course, was really generous in sharing it with his network. And I put it on Twitter and LinkedIn and SearchFunder. And I think just the combination of those things, uh, I think, distributed it pretty well. I can totally relate Very to cool. the to the monthly grind versus the weekly grind. I originally started the podcast and thought that I might be able to do it weekly. Uh, unbelievably, three months after having my first kid, don't ask me why I thought that was a good idea. It was probably because I had I was I was on literally zero sleep at the time, so I ended up going to biweekly, which was a little bit more manageable, but still not easy because you would source a guest one week and then you would record and then you would post produce it the next week and then put it out. And so now Victor and I are back to, to weekly and I've, I've noticed a little bit of an uptick. Would you say from the sponsor side, was that something that you were seeking or did they end up seeking you because of the, the focus around the small business and that, that niche, that space? I sought out the first two sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Hood and Strong. And then the third and then the proceeding forth and you know, any any sponsors after that have all been inbound. I think once folks saw that I was uh, posting sponsors and that that was something I was taking, I think a few companies reached out with interest of sponsoring. So they've developed a nice kind of bench of sponsors behind the current ones that you know, if they decide to drop, then I have other ones who can who can take their place. So the I was initially nervous because the the initial sponsorship agreements for, for three months at the start of the episodes or at the start of weekly episodes in July. And so I knew like I figured I had three months to grow the podcast or prove to them that it was a, a worthy investment of theirs. And luckily enough that that worked. And I think since then the, the that sponsorship has strengthened and um, extended. So I'm, I've been pretty excited about that, but um, yeah, that was, that was a, a nerve wracking three months for a little bit, but um, I, I think the podcast has matured to a, a great extent since then. Yeah, certainly. I was going to ask, I was definitely going to follow up on one, how you chose the sponsors that you eventually went with on what basis did you feel like they were a fit for the podcast? But then also what, were there any KPIs that you were sort of being judged on or off of for the ad agreements and Victor, you might've been about to ask this question. <laughs> it's a good question, but I reached out to Live Oak and Hood and Strong because I'd seen them sponsor a few other events. So I knew that they were interested in the search fund space and they have specialties in search funds. So Live Oak Bank knows the search fund model really well and the SBA really well and works with a lot of searchers and, you know, Hood and Strong does the same. So um, Hood and Strong, of course, is an, is an accounting firm, so they do the accounting side of a transaction, but very familiar with the search funds. And I'd seen them publish, and or not publish, I'd seen them sponsor a few other events, and so I knew that they'd be interested. And so reaching out to them, they were definitely interested. And, and if you think of um, different KPIs, I initially thought of perhaps a variable cost, so you could charge a, like per download or something similar. Um, the problem is, though, large institutions that can afford good sponsors or good sponsorship deals, they want a fixed fee because they they want to know exactly what a sponsor is going to cost. So they don't because they have to they have to you know, run it into in front of a board and get approval for that expense. And those folks on the board who approve that expense want to know how much it's going to cost, which makes sense. I also want to know how much the podcast is going to make. So I decided that a fixed fee was probably going to make more sense. And so that's the that's the terms we've gone with so far. But yeah, keeping track of 
downloads, clicks, and then just, you know, I just hear from them anecdotally how many folks are reaching out to them as a result of the sponsor. And I think most, I think most sponsors are pretty happy with it so far. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point at the very end. And I guess that was more of the question that I was asking on about just the, the value that you are bringing them that they are judging the sponsorship off of. Uh, but it sounds like just anecdotally, they want to, they just want to see people reaching out and inquiring about their services, uh, which is ultimately what the, the whole goal of it is about. So wanted to ask this question. So Victor and I eventually would obviously like to get the podcast to be cash flow neutral or or even cash flow positive. We want to be cash flow positive. Well, it has to get neutral before it can get cash flow positive. <laughs> We're in the red now. We're certainly in the red right now. <laughs> Hood and Strong, Live Oak Bank, and there's one one more, the insurance broker, I can't remember off the top of my head. They're off the table because they're your sponsors. But we're also a little bit broader in scope, maybe not so much focused on the SMB space, but a little bit more so on um, long-term, sort of permanent capital, permanent hold type businesses, entrepreneurs, investors, right? If you were in our shoes, how would you go about trying to attract and think about the sponsors that would be a good fit? Just just your perception. I think it's... It's hard to say because Think Like an Owner was so focused on search funds and people buying small companies that there's a, a specific group of service providers that cater to that group. And so since I focus so much on that group, even though the downloads aren't, you know, Patrick O'Shaughnessy or Joe Rogan level, you know, sponsors know that it's completely made up of people who buy and operate small companies. And so that that alone was enough to I think prove the podcast value, but yeah, if you're broad, I don't want to encourage you to go to focus, but they say the riches are in the the niches. Right. Um, and I, in terms of podcast sponsorship, I can completely agree with that. I think if you're going general, it becomes more difficult because a sponsor doesn't know exactly what your, your audience is or what they're made up of. Um, but if you really focused and evolved that over time, or maybe you could just see like what episodes got the most listens. Was it the SMB stuff? Was it the public market stuff, the real estate stuff? Like what did people really enjoy listening to and start to draw conclusions from that or focus on that. But, um, I, I also don't want to encourage you guys to focus if you're interested in other stuff, like the podcast should be on things that are interesting to you. Um, because that's, that's the only way, that's the only reason or way that you're going to do it consistently. Cause I think growing a podcast is just consistent effort over a long period of time. And if you're doing stuff that you're not interested in, you're not going to do it for very long. And so focusing may not be the best advice, but it just, it makes it harder to find sponsors unless you can find, cause the other thing too was not only was the podcast really niche, but the sponsors were high value sponsors. Yeah. So if Live Oak Bank or Hood and Strong or Oberly get even two clients out of the podcast, it pays for even an above market sponsorship rate. Because Live Oak Bank is going to make a multi million dollar loan. You know, Hood and Strong is going to get fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of, you know, deal fees, and Oberly is going to get tens of thousands of dollars. So everyone makes a lot of money from even just one or two customers. And so that means I can charge more for it. You could do some sort of affiliate programs. You could find service providers that cater to small businesses that are high value that do affiliate programs and then build something off of that. But honestly, the other thing might just be create a different product within circle of competence that people pay for. So you could do, I feel cheesy doing courses. So I, I probably, I personally wouldn't do that. I mean, the best monetization might just be 
either going to start a search and buying another company and somehow using the podcast for it or creating another product. I think it's a hard thing to monetize, but I'm sure you can figure it out. Are you guys familiar with Not Boring, you know, Packy McCormick's newsletter at all? Yeah, I am. I, I like his, his writing a lot. It's really good. Yeah, it's a Not Boring is kind of like business breakdowns, mostly public companies, but some private too. I should know that. It's kind of a nice mix. It's it might be actually mostly private, if I remember right. But there was a there's a newsletter called Flywheel that did a, a breakdown of Packy's business model, and it's really interesting. So he does these sponsored deep dives. So a company will pay him to do this deep dive article to his thirty thousand subscribers about their company, and the company through that sponsorship gets you know new customers, new employees, new ideas, all that sort of stuff you know inbound into the business. So. At what point did you start outsourcing? Yeah. Pre or post sponsor? For the most part, post sponsor. Um, there, that's something that I've kind of picked up from guests and and you know investors and owners that I admire is they're really good delegators and they're really good at you know ruthlessly cutting out things that they that aren't mission critical that but need to get done but they aren't particularly good at or a good use of their time and editing podcast episodes it was it's probably five or six hours for every hour of recorded time and that's what i was doing initially monthly for so long it's partly why it was monthly because it just took so long and so when i got sponsors i began um, handing off that work to people who were better at it than i was anyway and so i handed off the podcast editing to matthew passy who does a really awesome job i just send him the recorded files and the timestamp notes for an episode and it comes back a day later or two and it's fully edited and I send it to the guest and they review it. And if they like it, it gets published. And so that's been a huge time saver. I hired my cousin, David Bridgman of Pink Robot Studios. That's his new his new design studio. I hired him to redo my website and my cover art. And now he runs my email and website. So when I have a new when I have a new podcast episode, I just create a Google Doc and it's it's formatted in the same way for every single episode with you know a title insert this here are the tags here's a description here's that libsyn description here's why i want the mailchimp email to look like and read and so i just text him when a new episode document is ready for him and he puts the the hosting together with libsyn he just schedules the email and he schedules the web article and so i've beginning to i've begun to hand off some of those things and there's, there's more to hand off, although it's starting to get to smaller and smaller tasks. Those were the two big ones, like audio editing and then just preparing the website and emails to go out. And now that those are both done, there's, there's a few other tasks that over time will get you know put handed off to someone else. But uh, those were the two big ones. And I couldn't have done that without sponsorship revenue because that, that for a weekly episode, it costs around 1500 bucks to do a month for the audio editing and then just hosting and then you know, pink robot studio fees to handle all that work. And so without sponsors, it's really hard to justify just putting that out of pocket. But once sponsors came in, I knew that that was something I immediately wanted to do. And I'm really glad I did it because it's allowed me to scale my time beyond just the podcast to other projects. And I'm not, I'm not bogged down, you know, in, in an evening, you know, trying to get an article or a website all edited or a, an episode all edited and ready to go. Yeah, that makes total sense. I am currently in charge of post-production editing and Victor's currently in charge of the newsletter newsletter scheduling and wordsmithing. So, and prior to me, you know, partnering with Victor, it was uh, me writing a blog every week and doing a podcast every other week. So I can totally relate to uh, to the grind. 
Alex, with your with your podcast and just growing, generating more traffic right now, we're we're really only like marketing per se via our Twitter accounts. Benton does a LinkedIn post every week um, on his side, and then um, we obviously like release that weekly newsletter. What else have you done, or do you do frequently, and and where do you feel like the most value comes in terms of like ROI on marketing? I wouldn't. I have a newsletter, but I wouldn't say I've done it well. Um, I think just keeping up a weekly podcast for a long enough period of time has been helpful. Um, frankly, being on Twitter has been huge. Being being active, I I try to do at least one or two tweets a day of something interesting. Usually, a thought provoking question for owners and operators out there on Twitter um, to stimulate a conversation and build stuff around that. Um, I think Twitter has been. I, I can you can draw a line between follower count and downloads of the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's they're pretty similar. Um, I found Twitter to be a really powerful networking tool. Um, I posted stuff. I post off on LinkedIn and LinkedIn and search funder as well, but I'm, I'm not, it's hard to give attribution yeah. to a particular source for your growth of the podcast. Cause any, all Libsyn tells me is download numbers. Mm-hmm. They don't tell me, if the person even listened to it or if they stopped halfway through or if they use an iPhone or Android or if they're in the U S or not, it, it just tells me if someone downloaded or not. And that's, that's all that I see. And I wish there was more data behind it because you could find out a lot more of that information. You and I talked, uh, briefly, probably a month or two ago, and you recommended Libsyn as, as your hosting service, but we use anchor.fm. It does have some of those data components that you just mentioned and breaks it down, but remind me but also the audience you know that strategic choice and, and why you decided to go with libsyn and your current setup i decided to go with libsyn mostly because the podcast i really respected used it but also because it was a highly respected service within the podcast community just for the rights of you as the podcaster to your content um <clears throat> so other companies that don't charge for hosting, they're going to find another way to make money off your podcast, whether that's inserting ads into your episodes or retaining some marketing rights to your show. So even if you leave that hosting platform, they still have the the right to market your show as part of their platform, um, even if it's not there anymore. So I, and I figured if I'm not paying for a service, then I'm not the customer. I'm probably the product and I want to be the customer. And Libsyn, it's 15 bucks a month, so it's not even like a material cost. It rounds to zero, the cost. So I figured I want to just pay for something that's clean and respected and it works well and not have to worry about it. Um, I, I think for if if someone is choosing Anchor just because it's free, I think they're kind of missing the force for the trees a little bit. They're, 15 bucks a month is very little in the grand scheme of things. So if you're trying to save $15 a month, there's there's probably something else going on that you should be looking at because I, I think as a podcaster, if you want to build a long-term content engine, you want as many of the rights to your content as possible. And from what I looked at, Libsyn gave you the most rights to your content. I love that. And also I've got just a couple more questions on probably the, the podcasting front. Um, one is, I, I, first of all, I love your podcast and I'm, I'm sorry it's taken me 45 minutes into this call to, uh, to mention that I'm a huge fan of your podcast and I recommend it to people all the time. I was actually listening to oh, your you. episode with John Wilson today. You're so good at asking good questions and giving people the space to answer things. And, um, this is the first podcast that I've ever worked on, uh, 
I think that I'm slowly, maybe possibly getting a tiny bit better at asking questions, but um, I still suck. And um, I'm embracing that suck, but I'm just curious, uh, have you done anything to like hone your craft uh, on the conversation or interview front? Because I think you're an excellent interviewer. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, It didn't start off that way for the first episode with Trish Higgins when I went to Boston and we had that interview in the shopping mall. Um, literally a shopping mall. We were at a table <laughs> in a food court and there's people walking by and it was, it was really, it was a little awkward at first, but, um, I had all my questions written down on a notebook next to me and I asked them in order. And I think back to that and I just cringe because that was like the perfect way to get an inauthentic conversation where it's, it's based on what I am interested in talking about, not what the guest is. And I view my role as an interviewer as finding whatever rabbit hole that guest is most interested in and then letting them dive into it and stepping out of the way and just probe for those interesting stories or lessons and then just let them go and not and try not to interrupt as part of that prep i have a call with the the person i'm about to interview and ask them like what are you most interested what are you excited to talk about like what rabbit holes can we go down and a lot of the times it's just active listening so you want to carefully listen to whatever they're saying because they'll give you clues as they go. You can you can hear uh, someone's tone of voice or inflection as they come across a topic that they're excited about. And they maybe they talk faster or they start, you know, speaking a little bit more clearly if they, you know, if they pause less and less as they get into a certain topic. Like you have a kind of this sense that, okay, this person's really excited about this thing. Let's dive into it more. Because in my experience, all the best podcast episodes that I've had were ones where I was able to find the guest's rabbit hole and just let him go. And because as a listener, you can hear when a guest is really excited about something. You know when they're really into something or they're passionate about a topic or they're telling a story and you can feel that they're you can feel that stress and the, the fear from a, a story or the, you know, the thrill of something. You can hear that and you begin to feel those same emotions as a listener. And so if you can find that with your guests, I think you're, you're well on your way to having a good episode. That's, those have been kind of the, that's the overall guiding principle I've, I've used is just find the rabbit holes that they want to go down and just let them go. So in light of that, how are you preparing for your interviews? Well, I don't write questions word for word anymore. Um, but I'll prepare with you know the, the call beforehand just to get a sense for what are they what are they likely to be interested in and then what what should I avoid also. Um, but I come prepared with a few topics and kind of themes to go around and just let the conversation go as it will. Sometimes I might prepare you know one to two sort of guiding questions just to see where they might go. Um, but oftentimes it's just a lot of listening and kind of picking up on wh- the direction that their mind, you know, unintentionally wants to go and just kind of steering them that direction and just weaving your way through a conversation. And if I list out, you know, maybe five or six themes within an episode or for a, for a particular guest, it's very likely we'll get to all of them without me having to force the conversation mm-hmm. to shift. I'll, if you let them go, they'll kind of wind their way around to other parts of their strategy or what their the story they're trying to tell. And your job is just to kind of keep them going and keep letting them guide themselves, but just give them encouragement here and there to keep going. Yeah, that's, that is fantastic advice. Admittedly, Victor and I are both talkers and are working on the active listening skill. So that is something that is definitely, that's great advice. 
The the question that I wanted to ask off of that that actually someone on Twitter wrote is if you had all the so you have all the experience that you have now running your podcast, but if you had to start a new podcast knowing what you know now, besides the over preparation and writing questions out word for word, you know, what else would you have done differently? That was a hard one. I I saw that question on Twitter too and I I had to give it some thought. Um I think initially I would probably do, uh, I'd try to go weekly faster and I would try to, because with weekly faster, you're able to pick up steam a little quicker and your, your podcast becomes a little more noticeable. Um, cause that initial, you know, that, that the first initial episodes, if they take a long time to get out, it's going to be really slow building that podcast, but you can build pretty quickly if you release weekly. So, <clears throat> but it's hard to say because every episode I did, was kind of that next step to prepare for what the podcast is today. And so it's hard to say whether I would do anything differently, but um, going weekly would be by far probably the biggest thing I would, I would push to change and perhaps being a little more aggressive with outreach. Cause I didn't have a network at the time. I didn't have guests who were referring other guests to me. So it was all cold outbound. Um, I think I'd have worked a little bit harder at that. Um, but also I was in my senior year of college, I was working on other classes. I was an accounting major. So you're, intermediate accounting and all these tough classes. So that took a lot of time. Um, and I was also working at the time as well. So, uh, it was, it was a lot to handle, but I wish, I wish I'd had a little more push to put more time into the podcast from the get-go. How do you manage your pipeline now? Like in terms of how you get referrals, uh, cold outreach and like how far ahead you're scheduling? Yeah, I think, for the first, up until now, I have, I've really only scheduled maybe two or three weeks out, which I think is actually okay because it, it keeps a fire under you to go find the next guest, but also means that if you get really interested in a topic, you can find those guests and then put them out, publish those episodes fairly quickly. So you can kind of act on your interests as they go a lot more quickly. Um, but having a, a backlog and kind of a, you know, scheduling out your episodes a little more is really nice because it takes a little bit of a weight off your shoulder. So I'm about a little over a month and a half scheduled out at the moment. Um, and so that refer that pipeline looks like uh, mostly referrals at this point. So guests who I've had on the show know what I, they've seen my show, they've been on the show, they know what I'm looking for, and they find other owners who would fit that profile really well and send them over and introduce them to me. That happens fairly frequently. Twitter has actually been a really great one for it. I found a lot of guests off Twitter, mostly through just watching them tweet and following their account for a little while. And you think, wow, this person has a lot, has a big story to tell, and I want to, I want to hear it. Um, so that's been a that's been a good one too. Um, every so often, I'll reach out to someone if there's someone specific that I'd, I'm interested in having on the show. I'll do that as well. But yeah, referrals and Twitter are probably the main methods now. But it did not start off that way. <laughs> I'm curious, who are some of your dream guests? Like, do you have any dream guests that you're that are on your pipeline someday, somehow, if you can mm-hmm. just, yep. you know, potentially get in touch with them? Yeah, absolutely. Will Thorndike is definitely the the biggest one on my on my uh, my list of dream guests. Um, I I think hearing about his his project, The Outsiders, and putting that project together and his early days search investing and Housatonic Partners would all be just, just super interesting to dive into. Because he's seen maybe every search deal for the last 20 years. And it, I think just that there's a huge knowledge bank there that would be incredible to di- dive into a little bit. So I'd love to have Will Thorndike at some point. 
Um, the other one, which you can, you know, you're not listening. Folks listening to the show can't see, but I have a Southwest Airlines um, thing back in here. Not super affiliate, but David Nealman, the founder of JetBlue, um, he ran Morris Air for a little bit in Salt Lake City, and which eventually sold to Southwest Airlines. And so he worked with Southwest and Herb Kelleher for a little while, and they eventually fired him because um, he he wasn't he had all these ideas, but no one wanted to listen to him. Um, so he went off and started. Uh, well, he he had a non compete, so he went off and helped WestJet start. And he started. Um, he worked with Open Skies, which is the like online reservations ticketing system, and then went off to start JetBlue. Got fired from there. And then went to start Azul in Brazil, which he he said that in an interview that he he made sure that the terms for founding that company were favorable and wouldn't get him fired. <laughs> so I think he I think he learned his lesson. But now he's back in the U.S. to launch Breeze Airways, uh, which is kind of a more like point to point airline, similar to Southwest, but with smaller aircraft. So like the A220, where you can fly, you know, maybe a hundred people across country economically. Um, I, I just think he's a phenomenal entrepreneur and the airline industry is notoriously brutal. And I think, you know, there's some stat of like to date, you know, since airplanes were invented, they, it's lost money or something crazy, but it's a absolutely brutal industry. That's super cutthroat, very high barriers to entry. And he's been successful at it so many times, uh, with, I, th- I think many, many kids, I think he has nine kids and he's got ADHD and, or no, I think he has ADD. And just, I would love to hear how he manages all of that and finds the time but and expertise to to put that many airlines together that successfully. I just think it's it's an incredible feat that I think more people should recognize. And I would love to have him as a, as a guest one day. I'd, more specifically, like hearing about Morris Air because that was very much a, a small business. If if you know, like the that kind of the search fund type business like that, it was it was pretty small and it, you know just a few flights to Los Angeles or around the Northwest uh, with 737s. I think that'd just be so much fun to dive into. So David Nealman and Will Thorndike are probably my two dream guests. Those are two great guests. And I want to ask Victor, which one of those would you be more interested to listen to? Because I know which one I would, but I'm curious which one you would be more interested in. Yeah, mine not, might not be the same as yours, but I, I think more, um, I, I missed his name, but the airline guy. David Nealman. Yeah. Yeah, David Nealman. I, th- I think there's something about serial entrepreneurs that's just like super fascinating. Like there's something in them that's just, it's a little bit super normal. Um, like it is so hard to start a company. And I mean, there's a couple, couple people that come to mind for me right now um, who have just done things successfully over and over again. There's a guy in Atlanta named Michael Guerin, who I think he was the CEO of American Tower at one point, the telecom business. And since then he's he's launched like five different telecom businesses all around the world. And he just kind of has this playbook for starting these businesses. And it's, it's just super badass. So I think that would, those kind of stories just fire me up. I think, I think serial entrepreneurs are really fascinating. Yeah. See, that's so interesting because I would 100% say Will Thorndike. <laughs> Alex, if, if you get a chance to interview Will Thorndike, I will probably listen to it three times. I'll do my best. <laughs> Well, I want to transition to the SMB space and just give you a little bit of space to talk about maybe some of the biggest lessons or takeaways from, you know, 50 plus shows thus far and all the entrepreneurs and investors that you've gotten to speak with. You know, what are some of the biggest lessons and takeaways that you've that you have, you know, thus far? I think what I found so interesting is there isn't one career path that everyone's from that who ends up buying a small company and running it really well. There's, 
it's not just MBAs who run companies well. It's not just folks without MBAs who run companies well or from operating space or from tech or software. Like everyone, it, it seems like every background has a group of great people who are able to run these companies really well. I find that so interesting because most of the other career paths that I went to school to learn about or have heard about are very, they're very path driven. There's, you know, step functions of growth as you go through your career, whereas search and running small companies is the complete opposite. It's very entrepreneurial. You can jump into a company at any time in your career, and it's, there's not necessarily any reason it wouldn't work at one age or one set of expertise versus the other. And I just find that so interesting because there's folks from all different backgrounds. There's folks from, there's, you know, the Chenmark folks were, you know, worked in hedge funds. Um, you know, Nick Hashko worked in consulting. Um, Mike Botkin worked in real estate before buying a landscaping business. Uh, John Wilson was, you know, he's, as he said, he was being a bad student and then took over his family's plumbing business and has been killing it. So there's, and then, you know, Rich Jordan went to the military and came back and I think he bought some real estate and then is now really killing it with his plumbing business. I, I like plumbers. Um, so I, I think I've just found it so interesting that there's not one background in particular that everyone falls into, that it's, it's very much a person-driven space where the person makes the investment or makes the deal work, not necessarily the background that they have. It's kind of like the Anna Karenina principle where like all unhappy families are, all happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are unhappy for different reasons. So like back they're all, all their backgrounds are different, but would you say that there are common qualities that make them successful in the businesses that they're running and investing in? I think they're just not afraid to step outside their comfort zone and look a little strange at times. You know, if, you, if you've worked at a, a private equity fund for the last two or three years, and then you go buy a, a landscaping company or a you know, pest control business, and you go back to your her, your family Christmas party, and people are asking you, like, what did you do? Like you, you left your Wall Street job to go buy a, this little small business. Um, I think that takes a certain amount of, of gumption and ability to bet on yourself and that strong belief in yourself to go do something that's very entrepreneurial. And so I think there's just this this drive to pursue their own vision and not being afraid to look a little strange at times. And I, I just really admire that and have come to really appreciate that when I find it in people. I'll be curious from a leadership perspective, what stuck out to you, uh, you know, from all of the different guests that you've interviewed, what qualities are most common you know, if you, if you were to identify them, you know, that make them good leaders, specifically in small businesses where, you know, they're dealing with employees, like they're the owner operators, not just like the CEO that sits in the white tower. Like they're also in the trenches. I think they just fundamentally understand what risk really exists somewhere. They, they know that they know exactly what can go wrong, but they are also preparing for ways that they don't expect something to go wrong. A lot of a common theme has been, you know, if someone succeeds or fails, it's rarely the way that they expected it to go, whether it's to the positive or negative side. Um, and so they're they're really good at preparing for a lot of different scenarios and having the patience to kind of eat glass for a little bit while it works, while something repairs itself um, and they bring a company around a little bit. Um, so and I think just having the patience to 
work with people who are perhaps very unlike themselves. And you know, anyone who buys a small company who I've talked with is really, really motivated, really career driven. They have a lot of ambition. And that's not necessarily the profile of people that they always find in these small companies. And so I think the folks who can really adapt to it well know how to work with a lot of different people. Like Rich Jordan, to me, is the prime example of that. He came from a military background, from the Marines. He ran a, a, you know, a team of 50-plus, if I remember right, and just had lots of experience working. I mean, the military had a lot of different kind of people coming into it, so he got experience with so many different personalities and backgrounds. And so when he comes to his, his plumbing business, he's he's prepared for it because he's had those different experiences and he's he knows how to work with people he knows what things can go wrong and he has the patience to work with those work with different scenarios and different types of people and find the great fits and you know think okay this person's you know they're really good at this thing and they like it but they might be really good at this thing let's try it out and they send them over and they love it and i think they just have this unique skill for preparing for risks, but being able to work with a lot of different kinds of people. I specifically, I don't remember all the questions that I've asked all the guests that I've spoken with, but I remember one question that I asked Trish Higgins and I'll always remember it just basically something along the lines of, you know, how do you incentivize or like motivate your employees? And it was the exact same answer that you just gave. Basically like, you know, I come from Wall Street and we are surrounded by these people that are super career oriented and you realize that that's a little bit of a bubble and that when you go kind of to Main Street, a lot of people just want to you know, provide for their family, which is great. Uh, it's, it's the majority of, of Americans just want to wake up and do good work and go home to their family. And, uh, and, I, you know, and I think Victor would probably say something similar as somebody that's just kind of a young, hungry entrepreneur sometimes you can get caught up in in that way of thinking and not realize like there are just all kinds of different people that don't look and think think like you do so i think that's i think that's great being able to relate to and just try and understand other people is is something that i've definitely been studying and trying to to learn a little bit more about so i I definitely appreciate that i want to switch gears just a little bit you know today it seems like search funds are sort of all the rage, right? I mean, there's an entire social media site dedicated to search funds. To me, and I'm also kind of talking my book because I'm trying to buy like what I would call like a super, I mean, a micro, micro business um, just with my own small amount of capital and kind of an owner operator type deal. Like I I just, I, I didn't really want to go out and raise money from people. I just, I didn't want to kind of go tackle that whole just process, right? I just wanted to do something that I could sort of get out there and hustle, roll my sleeves up and and try and grow it. I would be curious if you were out there, you didn't have the podcast and you were trying to go acquire a small company to run, would it be a search fund uh, route? Would it be like a micro sort of owner operator role? Would it be somewhere in the middle or would it be none of the above and you'd be off on Wall Street? Like, what do you recommend for people that are kind of interested in this space? I think if you're interested in the space, it's helpful to just start scanning through sites like Biz by Sell, or even if you go to Craigslist, like believe it or not, there's businesses for sale on Craigslist. Just go to the for sale section and then collect, click business and then sort price high to low. And there's businesses there. Um, and I would just start going through that and get a sense for what businesses are out there that you're likely to encounter and see if that is something that's still exciting to you. Because I think a lot of folks, um, as search has become more popular, it's become a little more glamorized. And it's 
it's not at all glamorous. Getting into these companies is very, it's it's not at all Wall Street. It's not your fancy job with, you know, suits and high pay and all this other stuff. So it's going to be very different. If you're coming from a finance background, it's very different from what you've been doing. And so I think just finding ways to be get, to get familiar with, you know, the prospect of searching and buying company would be really helpful. And that also means just having calls with searchers and, you know, calling calling whoever you know who runs a small company um and also getting on twitter and just following it and there's a lot of great owner operators on twitter who talk about running a business and you know the the knife fight and getting punched in the face from their company trying to grow and all this and just manage the day-to-day it's pretty incredible so that's where i would start um but yeah if it's something really small i'd be tempted just to start it so if you are looking at carpet cleaning businesses on craigslist and there's one that makes 100 100 grand maybe i'd be tempted just to start it instead of buying it i think i think buying makes sense if you're buying something that even if it's a job today if there's clearly potential for it to not be a job and become a real business over time i think that becomes really interesting but if you buy something that's too small you're going to spend a lot of time trying to ramp up that might be better suited to just your time and risk might be better just to start the company. So I think it really depends on what kind of business you want to go after too. I'm not not familiar at all with, you know, digital assets and some of these websites that are for sale really specialize more in just service type businesses. So that's, that's my expertise, but I'd be tempted if you're looking at stuff that's really small and have a lot of capital, I'd be tempted to start something, even if it's something on the side or try to go buy something off biz by sell. That's still fairly small, but has potential to grow into something bigger. What other spaces really interest you for potential investments? Like I think earlier you kind of mentioned that you love plumbing as a space. Yeah, just curious what what other kind of spaces you're interested in, and what makes them attractive to you? Yeah, I th- I, there's just saying service businesses like that. That means a million different types of companies. Um, I think within that there's just endless niches. Um, I did a Twitter thread a little while ago of the most unique business you've ever seen which I, I think is such a fun experiment because I, I, that's the fun part to me about studying small companies is you come across these businesses you never knew existed. So companies that, you know, companies that sell like lab rats to pharmaceutical companies and like different breeds of rats and at different ages, or they sell fleas and ticks to other pharmaceutical companies or goat rental businesses or a company that like melts dentist metal equipment and resells the metal this small company that was a dove rental for like a wedding uh for weddings or something like that um the, there's literally a, a business broker who's listed a dove business for 25 grand and listed all they also listed revenue as zero and net income as zero so i'm not sure what they're actually selling but probably just the doves there's so many endless niches that it's hard to identify one in particular that i really enjoy because every day you find something new you're like holy cow that's fascinating business like of course parking lots have to be cleaned and restriped but you never really thought that there was a whole business that just did that or just did the like construction cones you know for to you know get drivers out of the way of a construction site on the road there's a company that just does that they don't do the construction they just do the signs and that exists and that it just there's endless different companies out there that all do something really unique that i've never heard of and so i think that's just the fun exploration of small companies well, Alex, I've got just one last question, Benton. I don't know if you've got anything else, but like I said, we're, we're early trying to grow this podcast, having a lot of fun with it and just meeting a lot of really interesting people. Um, this has been a blast chatting with you. 
outside in, any advice for us? Only that I would say building a somewhat of a business case for the podcast, like building a business around it is important because it allows you to start handing off tasks to other people. So uh, other experts are better at it. So audio editing, you can, if you have income, you can pay for Matthew Passy to do your podcast and he'll do a really awesome job and you won't have to do it anymore. You can pay for your website to, you know, to refresh your website if you want or have someone else run it for you. And I just think there's so much you can do if you have income attached to it. So I'd, I'd, I'd seek out ways to build a, even just a small business around the podcast so that it, cause it will create a better podcast. If it frees up your time to do other things, you can focus on, it's kind of like working in or on the business. Like if you're able to get out of in the business and you're work, able to work on the business, the business will improve. And so any way that allows you to do that is something I would recommend. Yeah. Um, but that just allows you to, grow the quality of your show and, and your writings and just build a better, you know, platform. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's a great way to, to wrap up and go into the final questions and super relevant advice for anyone, for us. We've got a lot of work to do, Victor, uh, but any, any search funder, any entrepreneur, are you working in the business or on the business? And if you're in the business, how can you get to where you are elevating, delegating, and working on the business? So, uh, but this has been super fun. I want to wrap up with just we, we ask basically four questions to each guest. So the first one is basically, you know, we want to interview guests that we believe are doing things the right way, thinking long term. But we wanted to give you a chance to answer this question: What do you think doing business the right way means? What does it mean to you? I think it's just a people first mentality because when when people describe running a business or running a portfolio company as, as capital allocation, I think it removes some of the humanity of it because business is just people. Business is just a group of people reunited around one task or a series of tasks. And so the better you can understand and work with people, I think the more successful you'll be. And that, that just means more being more likable personally and, you know, finding ways to grow your maturity. You know, Mark Hunter on the podcast recently talked a lot about that. Um, and understanding how to work with different types of people, be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and really understand what are their incentives? What are they afraid of? Cause if, if you have, if you're working with someone who's really angry or, you know, frustrated with something, it's probably not just one thing. There's probably a number of things going on. So if the faster you're able to talk with that person and figure out what's going on, the better you can work with them and find ways to help each other. And I think business is just helping each other. You know, I sell a product that helps someone else and they pay me and that helps me with, you know, my, my team and my community and other things that I'm doing. So I think the better you are just understanding people, the better at business you can be. Are there any personal habits or practices that you are dedicated to that help keep you physically fit or mentally fit or that you just enjoy doing for, you know, decompression purposes? I probably do need to build more of a formal routine. We got a puppy recently and she's six months old. So she's, she's been a handle a handful recently. So that's been something to, to, to work around a little bit, but she's getting better. So eventually that routine will fall back into place. But, um, I love cooking with my wife a lot. Um, uh, we like, we like trying new things and making dinners together. And I find that's a really relaxing time to just, you know, relax and hear how her day went here, you know, share how mine went. And I think that that tends to make me happy and relaxed and gives me a lot more perspective 
um, going on walks with my dog has been really great. Um, listening to podcasts that talk about business, I think is, is helpful here and there, but I think just listening to other random things has been helpful. Um, I, I love, I'm a huge football fan. So study, I find that there's a lot of crossover between business and football, especially from a coaching and, and strategic point of view. Um, just identifying, you know, weaknesses and shoring up strengths and that sort of thing. Um, I love studying, you know, all 22 film and watching coaches talk about how they run their programs and how they recruit, how they, you know, build a, a strength and conditioning program, how they hire other coaches and how they recruit new players into their program. I find that whole thing just fascinating and just a microcosm of a business is running a, a football program. So I find that to be an interesting kind of ancillary thing to study that, that indirectly relates. But um, I've been trying to read more fiction. I used to read only nonfiction. And I, I, I used to think if I'm not reading fiction, if I'm not reading nonfiction, I'm wasting my time. And I've, I've slowly started to shift my way, shift away from that a little bit better. And so there's a few fiction books that I need to read. Um, some Stephen King, for, for instance, is, is something I need to read. So I'm looking forward to doing that more. Yeah, I hear you on the fiction. I was a big fiction fan for a long time and uh, I need to make my way back there. So what business hasn't been started yet, but needs to be? And maybe another way to ask this is if you could snap your fingers and solve a pain point professionally or personally, what would that be? All I can think of is podcast stuff and that's not necessarily interesting. So, I mean, running a podcast has a lot of different areas that need to be fixed like just data on podcasting is really terrible. Um, it's clunky working with sponsors and then putting in their reads into a show. It's clunky working with a guest and sending edits their way. It's really just all over email. So finding a better way to clean that up would be nice. Some central database or, you know, workspace where I could work on my podcast and, you know, do everything from that point would be, would be nice to have, but that's a, that's a good question. I honestly, I think that's a great answer. I mean, it's super relevant to, for us too. Uh, things are all over the place. I think like podcasting is big enough and people are launching enough new podcasts every day that someone will create a great platform like that where you can um, manage everything from one, one place. Mm. Yeah, I think someone will eventually come up with it. I think I'll be probably an early user if possible because um, that would be something that could really streamline yeah. things a little bit. There's probably a way to build it with no code tools. Um, and there's, there's, there's some folks out there that I should just talk with about, you know, streamlining some of those procedures and processes and making them a little bit cleaner, but, um, that's a, that's work for another day. Tweeted Andrew Wilkinson. I know he is a super believer in the podcasting space and he's probably got the capital and the tools and the people at his disposal to, uh, to make that happen. So uh, he, he would probably be happy to, to see it happen too. I know he wants to, to invest in the space for, it seemed like from our conversation for a long time to come. So who knows? Just to, to round things out tonight together, what's the nicest thing anyone has ever done for you? I think the nicest thing anyone's ever done, it's more of a, a series of things over many years, but together make a really, really, really kind thing. There's so my boss that I worked for after college, Nick Fisher, um, he's a portfolio manager at Pilot Wealth Management. I met him in high school because he ran this business program for high school students where you'd go away to a, a college campus and you work there for you know a week with a small group of students and you run this kind of mock company for a little while. 
and there was a there's a kind of a business week and then the next year you go to the investing week program where you talk about public markets investing and you run a google sheet or google uh, google finance portfolio and you compete against the other students for for prizes and whatnot i met him through that program and just i was really curious about investing and so i would just call him every now and then or send him an email and he always answered he always sent he, he always replied he was always willing to meet for coffee and that slowly kind of morphed into more of a, a mentorship where he became a mentor of mine through high school and through college. I interned with his company, Pilot Wealth Management, with Jason Lesh. I, in, I interned with them through college and then worked with them afterwards. And all through that time, I was starting the podcast and they were super supportive of it. And I went to work for them and I worked for, at Pilot for a little over a year. And then when I quit that job, they were... They weren't upset at all. They were super excited that I had been able to build this project that I was passionate about to the point where I could work on it full time. And they were really proud. And they even now, like they're really supportive of the project, even though I I quit working for them. Um, and I I met Nick this morning, so that was that was super cool. But I have I have just come to a, a really appreciate knowing now, like that folks like that have really busy schedules and aren't always that available. The fact that he was willing to take that time over many, many years and share it with me when I had nothing to offer him, I think is just a huge kindness. And I don't think I, I don't, th- I definitely would not have started the podcast without his pushing. Cause he pushed, he's the one who pushed me to start the podcast. He saw that I was interested in this stuff. He knew that I was going to go to New York and be around where Chenmark was. And I talked about Chenmark before and he said, why don't you go reach out to Chenmark and just see if someone will you know, be up for an interview. And someone was, and they, they pushed me after I got the interview, he said, okay, now you got to put the podcast out, go try it. And so he pushed me to start the podcast. And I think without him and his mentorship over so many, many years, I, I don't think I would be anywhere near where I am today. I love that. And it, you know, it's good. He pushed you out into the public because I think when you put something out there kind of publicly, yep. like it's out there and you got to follow through. So that's a great way to wrap up. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time tonight. This was a blast and, you know, we're huge fans of your podcast and we've, we've learned quite a bit. I think Victor and I's ultimate goals are to, to, to buy and to operate, um, you know, small business and eventually hopefully grow a portfolio of them. And this podcast is kind of a journey of, of learning and exploring and we're just big fans. So we appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Big fans of what you guys are doing too. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.